I am here with Graham Wood. Graham, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Sam. So where am I reaching you? I I get the sense you're not uh, at home. I'm usually not at home. And right now I'm in Oslo, Norway. Home for me is is the United States. And usually I'm traveling around. It's harder than it usually is. But uh, I have family over here. I got jailbroken from the US and made it out. Have you been traveling throughout COVID or have you been locked down for a period? This has been the most sedentary period of six months or so in my life. So I've been locked down with the exception of one reporting trip to Florida. And you've been on the podcast before. You wrote a great book on the Islamic State, which we discussed, um, The Way of the Strangers. So people are encouraged to listen to that if they want to get your expertise on all things related to jihad. But generally, uh, can you summarize your focus as a writer? I mean, you you write mainly for The Atlantic and uh, cover really interesting stuff. But what what sort of things are you focused on these days? These days, I've been not traveling around so much. So I've been writing a lot of opinion columns. I've been writing a, a fair bit on COVID, usually with an international focus. But my bread and butter is traveling around, finding things that are interesting wherever they might be. And uh, as you mentioned, for a few years, the main thing that I've been writing about has been the Islamic State and the development of jihadism. So domestically, I think I want to focus on all the ways in which the United States has begun to resemble a failing state. You obviously know what it's like to be in a failed state or to focus on it. But it seems to me we're dealing with trends in public opinion and disinformation and failures of sense-making, a breakdown of trust in institutions, political polarization, failures of leadership at a level that I haven't even contemplated in my lifetime, I don't think. I mean, perhaps I was just too young to understand how bad it was at various points earlier in my life. But this just seems like an unraveling that is fairly disconcerting. You know, I'm happy to go wherever you want to go, but I thought we could talk through what's been going on with social protests and police violence and the political ramifications of what happened in Kenosha and and Portland. And and actually, now I recall that the first time we met was around this topic of violence. Yeah, actually, I got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and you wrote a piece in The Atlantic on that, and that's what you you came out, and I sort of introduced you to my midlife crisis around uh, all things jiu-jitsu and and self-defensive. So um, it's kind of full circle for our conversation, but give me your general sense of what we're living through at the moment in the U.S., yeah, so like I mentioned, a lot of my reporting has been going overseas to places that have had some level of social breakdown, some level of political breakdown. And so, yeah, th- there are some aspects of that that you definitely see in the United States. When I think of of societies that have really broken down, though, I think of places like Somalia, like Iraq, places where the government just has ceased to exist. And we don't have that. We We have touches of that. And we have a kind of relative breakdown that I, I think is we experience both as an, an absolute loss of, of standards and performance of government, but also a relative loss when we look at other countries that, that seem to be doing much better than we are. And that you know we thought 
we thought we were in their league or we were they they were not quite in our league but but below us and somewhere like say vietnam or thailand it has just been cleaning our clock when it comes to dealing with with covid so what does breakdown look like in another place the kind of places where i would have been sent a couple of years ago 10 years ago to report i think of places like like zimbabwe where you know, the government has, has no longer any control over its currency, uh, can't be trusted to maintain law and order because it, it insists on, on destroying any, any, kind of, any kind of law and order that, that might exist. So we see bits of that right now. I mean, th- there are cities that are pretty much acknowledged to be no longer under control of the forces, law enforcement, or any other kind of discernible powers that we would want to have a monopoly on the use of legitimate force. So th- there's, there's touches of that. Now, what I've found in looking at other countries is that the, the really dangerous combination is a place like Iraq, where at one point you have total control by the government, way too much control, control over the life of, and death of, of its citizens say, during the Saddam Hussein regime, that's replaced by total anarchy. So in the United States, you see touches of that, too. You, you see the government arrogating to itself all sorts of kinds of, of, of power that you, we shouldn't really be comfortable with. And then at the same time, you, you see the total breakdown of, of law and order in certain pockets of, of, of urban America. So I am... Yeah, I'm, I'm terrified to see that combination of both consolidation of power and then total chaos. It's, it's, it's a really ugly combination to see. Yeah, I remember I did a podcast in the beginning of April with Stanley McChrystal and uh, Chris Fussell, his partner. Forgive me, Chris, I can't recall whether you pronounce your last name Fussell or Fusel or some other variant there. But anyway, I remember having this conversation with them and talking about the prospect of a breakdown in social cohesion under COVID. And I remember, I I think I actually telegraphed this in the conversation, but if I didn't, I was certainly thinking it, that I was worried that I was being a scaremonger for even just hypothesizing that this was possibly on the menu or, or worth thinking through, right? Just that things could fray enough so that there would be violence in the streets, that our political partisanship could turn violent. It really did seem, you know, as recently as the beginning of April, far-fetched to me. And I just felt like it was worth talking about because it was possible. But, you know, if you'd asked me then, I certainly didn't feel it was likely. And, And so now I'm interested to consider how many of us have now kind of reset our expectations, and this seems like the new normal, and we're not actually entertaining how much worse things could get, and it would seem like scaremongering to sincerely entertain that. But there is a kind of slide towards something unrecognizable, at least in our lifetimes here. Obviously, there are comparisons with the 60s, and there was a, you know, a fair amount of social unrest then. I don't know if, you know, I'm sure there are many disanalogies there as well, but, you know, with Trump in the White House and the prospect of either him being reelected or there being, you know, real 
a real unwillingness to accept the results of an election that goes against him. It seems like a very risky time we're in. And the thing that is so disconcerting for me, just on an hourly basis, is to see how things are distorted in what used to be the most reliable sources of news for us, right? I mean, I feel like now I can count on the New York Times to get crucial things wrong with respect to what's happening with protests and police violence, say, and wrong in a way that just amplifies political partisanship and hysteria on the part of people who actually decide to go in the streets, you know, and certainly hysteria on social media. And so I I feel like there's a kind of a moral panic component to a lot of what's going on. And there are very few level-headed people in the media whose inclination is to turn down the temperature on things. The business model of media is to be as shrill and sensational as possible so that the partisans amplify your message. So yeah, I just there's a way in which this is a runaway train, or at least feels like one that, that worries me, and I, for which I really don't have any it just seems deeply unfamiliar to be living through. Yeah, I, I think there's a definite recalibration that's taking place within media and a recalibration that, that as citizens, we've got to kind of work through in our own minds. You know, we notice things that we didn't notice before about stories getting covered or not getting covered that, sh- that should be. And, you know, I would still take the New York Times over my Facebook feed, say, as a way to understand what's happening in in the United States. That said, you, you know, it's it's been tough. At the Atlantic, which is where I write most of the time, it the magazine ha- has endorsed a candidate. In the last election, it endorsed Hillary Clinton. Very odd thing for the Atlantic to do just because we we don't endorse candidates most of the time. But to have announced ourselves as as having been on one side, now readers have to have to Take that into account, and it's just our being honest. I mean, there there were basically nobody at the magazine who was in favor of Donald Trump, and and so it was important that 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 we come right out and say that. And so when readers read us, they they know that that's where our our origin point is going to be in our opinions. That said, we, we still, I mean, I've been told by more than one editor that if Donald Trump does something right, then it's our duty to say so. So there is still a, a standard of truth that, that we're working toward. It's just that we're in a different media environment. Hmm. I would also hasten to add that it's not just media. I mean, th- there are so many other sources of, of, of truth that we would have taken for granted in the past that we no longer can. You, you may have seen Harold Varmus co-wrote an op-ed in the New York Times yeah. just in the last couple of days. It's the former head of the NIH, one of the most Nobel Prize winner basically said, don't trust the CDC. CDC has been politicized. So if you've got Harold Varmus telling you not to trust the CDC, then you really have a, a breakdown in the sources of medical information Yeah, when you need to have that information coming through loud and clear with the consensus of the, the best medical minds. Yeah. Don't trust the CDC in the middle of a pandemic when you have to decide whether to send your kids back to school. It really is unbelievable we're in this situation. Well, let's talk a little bit about the violence we've seen, because this is a place where I see everyone left of center seeming to get 
virtually every specific claim wrong. And, you know, I'm someone who, as I think you know, is more concerned that we uh, not reelect Donald Trump than most people. I mean, certainly I, I would put my anti Trump bona fides up against anybody on the left or the center or among the never Trump Republicans. But it is crazy making and deeply concerning that the left seems to, the bar is nowhere near what, where you put it at the Atlantic. Not only would they not acknowledge that he gets anything right, but just everything is upside down in how they describe what's happening with police violence and social protests. I mean, NPR just published a, a wonderful interview, which I think you noticed, informing all of humanity that looting was essentially a moral imperative and, and a great form of social protest because small business owners are really no better than big business owners, and they all deserve to have their stuff stolen. And this was presented on the NPR website without any, there wasn't a single critical question, if I recall correctly. It was just like, this is practically NPR's position on looting. Yeah, it was, that was shocking to read. I, I've actually subjected myself to the book. I've, I've read it cover to cover by now mm. and have reviewed it for The Atlantic. Oh, nice. It is, if anything, it's more radical than the NPR interview would have you believe. The NPR interview really took the title of the book as the, the jumping off point, In Defense of Looting by Vicki Osterweil. The book is actually mostly about in is a defense of violence. So looting is an afterthought. I think there are whole chapters where looting isn't mentioned explicitly. What it's really trying to argue is that America is conceived in sin, racial sin, capitalist sin, you name it, that the system that we've inherited in the present is bad, it's screwed up, and that it must be destroyed. So, you know, if if it sounds like the kind of thing that would destroy our society to just have people smash open shops, take everything in them and burn them down, then that is very much the point. There's a, a, a desire on the part of the author to recreate society in what I can only assume is some kind of, she doesn't say explicitly, but a, a Marxist anarchist revolution that is born out of violence, wiping away the old order. And yes, the, the NPR interview that introduced this book to, I think, most of the people who have heard about it was totally uncritical. And I will say this for it. I, I think that NPR did the right thing by interviewing this writer because there are a lot of people who have, if not explicitly positive things to say about looting, think that looting is a reasonable response to the injustices of, of American history or the present in the American system. And I think that those people need to articulate what they really think. They, they, they can't just get away with saying, I don't want to criticize the looters. No, I, I want them to, to say I'm on the side of Vicki Osterweil or say that they have a different view of, of, of looting. But being able to be kind of mealy-mouthed about these things has not worked out very well. And it's allowed, for example, Donald Trump to, to conflate the position of, say, Joe Biden with the position of, say, someone who throws a brick through a window and steals an iPad, which is completely unfair. Making sure that these differences are, are as sharp as possible, I think, is one of the things that journalists should do. So NPR, they started to do that. Unfortunately, they weren't as critical of 
as they could have been of the author when when they had her in their clutches. Yeah, so Biden, as of yesterday, I think we'll release this a few days hence, but we're recording the day after he gave his speech in Pittsburgh, and the purpose of which was to put some daylight between him and the caricature of him that Donald Trump tried to paint, uh, aligning him with the left and the pro-chaos, pro-looting, anti-capitalist, you know, far left, which exists and is, is you know, clearly worth disavowing. I, I assume you saw that speech. I, I was pleasantly surprised that he took the line that he did, and I thought it was pretty effective. But he does still get enough wrong as part of his talking points that, um, given enough time, he doesn't do himself too many favors here. So, like, when he talks about police violence, virtually everything he says seems to me to be pandering to Black Lives Matter in a way that's just inaccurate. I should, you know, explain why I think that. But, you know, I think he also said that Kyle Rittenhouse was a white supremacist at one point, not in his speech, but I think on Twitter, I think that, you know, his campaign released something about white supremacists in a way that was clearly referencing the Rittenhouse shooting. I don't think there's any evidence that Rittenhouse is a white supremacist, is there? I mean, obviously things can change by the day, but at the time we're having this conversation, do you know of any evidence that suggests that? No, unless you think that a white supremacist is someone who believes that there is such thing as private property and it should be defended by the state. And, you know, there are such people who who are so radical that they would say that that alone will make you a white supremacist. But as far as I know, all the reporting about Kyle Rittenhouse's social media suggests that he was a big cop enthusiast, a big gun enthusiast. And if that makes you a white supremacist, then I guess he's a white supremacist. But uh, I'm, I tend to be more restrictive in my definition. Yeah. Well, I think our sanity depends on uh, our being that way. So let's just wind this all the way back to the Jacob Blake shooting, which was the proximate cause of all of this chaos. What happened there, to my eye, again, we're talking at one point in time, and you know who knows what facts will come out in subsequent days or weeks. We might learn a lot about the cops there. We might learn that they're all members of the local chapter of the KKK, and therefore racism could have been a conscious motive on their parts. But when I see a shooting like that, within the frame of that video, the color of everyone's skin is totally irrelevant. I've seen videos like that where white people are getting shot. I've seen videos like that where black people are getting shot by black cops. And, you know, I've talked at sufficient length about the statistics of all of these encounters with cops and applications of violence, lethal and not, and justified and not, to say that the story is not, is certainly not a clean Black Lives Matter story of us having an epidemic of racist police violence against young black men. That is just, the statistics don't bear that out. You know, I would just say to our listeners, you have to listen to my two-hour walk through this morass titled, Can We Step Back from the Brink? Or Can We Pull Back from the Brink? One of those. But so when I look at a video like this, and I'd be interested to know if you see this differently, we clearly see a person who has been resisting arrest. I don't know to what degree he fought with the cops before the video starts. I mean, we see him just essentially moving away from the cops, you know, and their guns are already drawn at this point. But I think it's from other video, I think it's pretty clear that there was a kind of wrestling match happening. 
and then he broke away. And then you have fully three cops, if memory serves, pursuing him around his car, and he's you know now opening his door to either get into his car to drive away or reaching into the driver's side of the car for something. Uh, it's not clear from the video. And then he gets shot seven times in the back, and now he is, I believe, still in some terrible state and very likely paralyzed, though I think it seems likely he'll survive at this point. And this encounter gets summarized virtually everywhere in mainstream media as, this is not a a verbatim quote, but this is a paraphrase of virtually every summary I've seen, yet another black man shot by white cops or a black man shot in the back seven times in front of his kids by white cops, right? You know, and it is just, it's an article of faith that the skin color of all involved is absolutely relevant here and worth emphasizing. And it's also an article of faith that all of these details have some moral opprobrium attached to them, like it is assumed that the cop could never be justified in shooting someone in the back in an encounter like this. Whereas if you understand how violence evolves and you understand that we're living in a society in the U.S. where every police officer has to assume that everyone they are dealing with is either potentially armed and if they're reaching for something in their car, they're very likely reaching for a gun. I mean, this is not the default assumption perhaps in in Western Europe, but in the U.S., it absolutely has to be. Our failures of, you know, gun control are are relevant here. But the idea that cops are performing some kind of lynching by shooting someone in the back because he has fought them off, ran around his car and, and opened the door and reached in, that's just, it's just completely untrue given a cop's eye view of the world. I think that the only thing I want to say here, and, and I'll turn it over to you, that really does put the onus on the cops is clearly they lacked the training or capacity to control him physically and take him down so that they wouldn't have to use lethal force, right? I mean, like cops who actually could restrain somebody could have easily restrained him. He was outnumbered. He was walking away from them in a way that allowed for any cop with a modicum of training to take him down and hold him down. And the fact that they couldn't do that suggests that there's a serious recruitment problem and training problem, you know, and and we know this is true, you know, nationwide. And so that's something to be worried about and, and rectified. But I mean, even there, people's intuitions about what cops should be doing, should be allowed to do, all of this has run off the rails in mainstream media. I mean, it's a point of seemingly absolute consensus that cops should never use you know, a rear neck restraint, otherwise known as a rear naked choke, because some number of people have died under those conditions, or seem to have died under those conditions. I think in many cases that that was not, in fact, their cause of death. Whereas a rear naked choke is, in fact, if done appropriately, a remarkably safe procedure. I mean, it's done in every jiu-jitsu school in the country every day of the year. And if it had any high rate of lethality, you you would just be seeing people die all over the country all the time in jujitsu training. And this is now, I think it's illegal in New York now and maybe illegal in other states for mm-hmm. cops to even attempt this. What you have done when you remove that tool 
you have made it far more likely that cops are going to have to resort to lethal force because they can't. It's really one of the only ways to incapacitate someone so that you can cuff them if you're going to rely on your grappling skills. And so it's just everything is upside down here. But again, I would love to know if you disagree with anything I said about what we can glean from that video. Yeah, there's a few things that I see when I watch that video, in addition to just being horrified at, 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 seeing, at seeing violence of any type. That, first of all, Sam, I think you're kind of like me in that you've probably spent a fair bit of time watching encounters like this on YouTube or wherever. Videos of, of police subduing, failing to subdue someone, police doling out violence and being the victims of it. And I think many people who see that scene, they start off being rightfully horrified at, at having witnessed an act of violence. And then they don't have some of the context that you might have if you've gone down some of those YouTube rabbit holes and, and watched lots of violence like this and, and seen mm. how this kind of thing could turn out in other scenarios, how that does turn out in other scenarios. Like, you know, the fact that he's lunging into his car, who knows what he's lunging for? Apparently there's a knife there. There's, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not a crime to have a knife in your car, as far as I know. However, if you're a cop and someone grabs a knife and you're right behind him and that person wants to stab you, you could have a gun, but I don't think the average person knows whether you should expect to get stabbed if someone is, is four feet away from you, you have a gun and they have a knife. And the answer mm -hmm. is almost certainly you're going to get stabbed. That's what you are, are, are dealing with. If, if you have someone who wants to stab you and you're that close, it's not, uh, unless you get one really good shot right in the head, it's very likely that the person's going to get to you and be on top of you with, with a knife, even if, you've, even if you've put a round in him already. So yeah, I, I think there's, there's not a great intuition on the part of the general public about the kind of threat that's being faced, about the type of mindset that you might be in if you're aware of those threats too. And right. I, I think too that that's, that's a problem it, that not just with, with police training, not just with the, the poor intuitions of the general public, but also with Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, I, I, if you are spending a lot of time thinking about guns, thinking about law enforcement, you are going to be aware of these things and maybe primed to overreact a bit too. If if your your politics suggested, the other thing in that in that video and in what you're describing is the 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 failure to describe it properly. Properly, you know, as a journalist, what what I tend to do is I look for incidents that turn out to be more complicated than they originally appear. And what you're describing is ex the exact opposite of this. And people seem to like doing that. Both sides: liberals, conservatives, left, far right. You find a, a situation of, of moral complexity, of deep ambiguity like this, and people are not as interested in what I do as, as in turning it into a, a black and white morality play. It takes, takes a lot of investigation to find out what's actually happening. Just watching a few seconds of a video is not going to tell you why the cops are there in the first place, what the interaction has been like up until the point where we see them shoot a guy seven times in the back. Yeah. And I'm not sure we'll ever know that. I mean, half the people I talk to about that shooting think that the guy died on the scene. They're not aware that he's still alive right mm. now. 
so if they're not aware of that detail and they're unaware of pretty much every aspect of the context of, of that shooting, and it can be used for one of these binary political purposes, either to suggest that he's a, a demon or to suggest that the people who shot him are. Yeah, well, I want to talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse episode because that does strike me as more complex and interesting in the end and has pretty wide implications. But yeah, just to reiterate something you said there about the Jacob Blake shooting and what it's like to have seen a lot of these videos. I mean, what you have to know is that every permutation of this kind of encounter has happened. So you can find video, again, with the race of everyone swapped in and out, right? You can find video where the guy reaches into his car, pulls out a gun, and shoots the cop in the face and kills him, right? And every cop knows about those kinds of encounters, right? So it's just, you have to game this out more fully than your, your knee-jerk reaction may admit of, which is, it is just awful that we're living in a society where cops shoot a guy in the back in front of his kids, right, with an apparent intent of killing him, right, as a way to pacify him. I mean, how did we get here? This is completely insane and unacceptable. But once the wheels begin to come off in an encounter like this, there are very few options open to people who don't have, you know, all the tools that might be possible there. I mean, again, cops of sufficient strength and training could have easily taken this guy down and held him down. He wouldn't have been injured in the end, right? So there's an absolute deficit of training and recruitment there that is visible to the eye of anyone who knows what is going on. And then there's the fact that I think a taser was used before the video picks up and failed. But, you know, people think that tasers are magic. Well, you know, why not always use them? Well, they, they're not magic, and they, they often fail. And they're more dangerous than a neck restraint, which has now been ruled illegal, right? Because it's if you tase someone and, and it works and they fall to the concrete and hit their head, you know, that is virtually always worse than actually being choked out, you know, in, in a jujitsu class. So people have to become better students of this kind of violence before they have the, these reactions that seem to justify burning down half a city or writing headlines which attest yet again in the loudest possible way that we have a, a real problem of lethal racist violence perpetuated by cops. Because again, you know, unless we find out more about the precursors to that event, there's no reason to even talk about race at this point. That's what's so sickening. My hypothesis is that virtually every mention of race is counterproductive now in our society. It's virtually only going to push society in one direction, which is greater polarization, greater derangement, greater hysteria, less contact with actual facts. And it's also going to increase the likelihood that we're going to get four more years of Donald Trump. There's one aspect of what you say that, that I am not so sure about, and we should come back to race in a second. But the idea that we should familiarize ourselves with this kind of interaction used to be very appealing to me. You know, I started watching these videos and I actually wrote a profile a couple of years ago of, of a guy named John Correa, mm -hmm. very nice guy who does kind of color commentary on videos exactly like this. So it will be badge cam, it'll be CCTV, but it's always violence that either happens or is averted. 
and then he will minutely dissect what happened. Yeah, and, and he's a former preacher, right? He he went from minister to full time yeah, security cam right. self defense video and analysis. Yeah, and, and yeah. he's he's still a, a man of God in the sense right. that he will remind you of the importance of having a good relationship with Jesus, and remind you why you know Jesus would want you to uh, put in the right amount of time at the range and, and so forth. <laughs> right, right. So he's a great guy and he's extremely responsible you know he's very i think evidence based when he he's he's doing these analyses and i i've learned a great deal i i think that people should watch him and heed his 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 words of caution as well i'm also though not really certain whether i want people to be thinking about this all the time for one thing rarely do you do you see people you know studi- studying encounters that go well, you know, that they mm. end up seeing huge numbers of, encounter, of encounters that, that go very badly, even if these are extremely rare in the, in the life of, of, of a cop or of a citizen. And I've found by watching them that you, know, you have to be extremely scrupulous in making sure that, that you have kind of kept your head on your shoulders when it, when it comes to understanding what the actual likelihood that this is going to happen to you is, and yeah. if you if you don't do that, you, your mind will be even more warped than when you when you went in. You might have a better sense of yes, this person with this weapon is a danger at this distance when I'm carrying this weapon, when I'm ready for him, when I'm not. But the fact of the matter is, most of us don't get attacked. Very very few of us are law enforcement, so many of these things are are, are just not relevant to our lives. And when we get too used to them. Then I I, th- I think it can have a a really warping effect on our psychology. I, I know mm. you, Sam, have spent a long time thinking about self defense, personal security, and so forth. As have I, and I, I'm not sure I would take back any of that time in my case. But I do worry that people are becoming over familiar with these types of of interactions, and what they get out of it is is not necessarily healthy for us collectively as a, as a society. Yeah, no, I would totally agree with that. And this is a, a nice segue into the Kyle Rittenhouse phenomenon, because if you become a student of this kind of violence, yes, you can get an outsized sense of how common it is. I mean, so really, what I, just to make clear what I was recommending, it's like, if you're not someone who really knows a lot about violence, you know, if you haven't studied it, if you haven't trained in anything, right, if you just don't know how hard it is to to shoot what you're aiming at, you know, especially when that thing is moving. If you're just not informed, don't have a strong opinion about these things, right? Don't go in like that. Now is a good time to burn down the local sporting goods store over this, or support others doing likewise. When you just don't know what's going on, it may certainly it also attracts. It, it is a kind of bug light. It attracts a certain kind of mind and a certain kind of person. To spend a lot of time doing this, and it's going to select for people who have that, you know, fondness for firearms and self-defense training, and you know, joining militias, and I mean, it's sort of the Kyle Rittenhouse kind of person. And then we wind up in this other terrible place on the landscape, which is once you get any kind of breakdown in social order, once cops get pushed far enough on their on the back foot, such that they're not doing the kind of policing we would expect them to do, right? Once they have essentially announced nationwide 
that they won't protect property, which they de facto have. Just by example, we saw this in the first wave of protests and riots, that even in the most affluent parts of the most affluent cities, cops would not protect property. I mean, you know, potentially there's an argument for that, but it's probably not a great one. And in response to the protests, we had the worst of all possibilities. We had cops essentially saying they would not protect property and they wouldn't even be diligent in protecting the people who tried to protect their own property from being, you know, violently attacked by mobs. We all saw footage of store owners being beaten by mobs. But what they would do is they would kick the shit out of peaceful protesters, right? That's what the cops were up for. So it was like, if you wanted to create a a machine to amplify uh, cynicism and a commitment to a kind of vigilante, you know, take matters into your own hands ethic, you could not have done better than these last few months with the spectacle of American policing. And, you know, what you have there, too, is exactly that, that kind of twin evil force going on where it's the forces of total chaos. That is the cops saying we are not going to enforce laws concerning property, go out, light fires, whatever. But at the same time, claiming for themselves immense power. So chaos and order both being weaponized to just make life hell. If you combine those two, you get what you know, what I was describing earlier is, as these characteristics of hellish failed states that I've reported on overseas. You know, it, it's it's in micro; it's not beyond recovery, but it's a taste of of what life is like in places where where everything falls apart. Mm. And you know, what I worry about most too is that these effects are are not exactly accidental. You know, the, the police, they step back from, from enforcement of, of property crimes. And sometimes in, in other places where I've reported, it's been pretty clear that, that they'll say, yes, we stand between you and violence and chaos. If we're not here, then that's what's going to happen. But kind of silently uttered after that, after that promise, that threat is, we're going to make sure that that's what's happen- what happens if we're not there. That is, if if we're not there to protect you, then things will go badly because we insist that they'll go badly so that you, uh, you know, give us the proper respect and, you know, sign over your, your security to us along with everything else. So what is your actual allegation or concern there that the cops have put the rioters on a sufficiently long leash for reasons of sort of, you know, justifying their own office? Like, look, are you sure you want to defund us? Well, let's take a look at what's going to happen tonight when we just, you know, sit on our hands. What I think that's uh, happened? Yeah. Well, what I think is happening is that that incentives exist. So the incentive is to say, first of all, there are some perfectly reasonable incentives. You you don't enforce laws concerning property because you're spending your resources making sure that people don't get killed. You you, you Mm. try to make sure violence isn't happening. So that's a good reason to do this. But there is an incentive, too, to say, look, we're not going to enforce this because we want to show you what happens when you don't have us. Mm. And the incentive is for what happens when you don't have us to be very, very bad, to be as bad as possible so that your appreciation for us, the police, is 
is is sufficient. So I'm not alleging that there's some conspiracy where the, the cops are handing people guns or, or Molotov cocktails. What I'm saying is that at all levels, there are some really, really negative, vicious incentives that are at work. And it wouldn't be shocking if there was a downward spiral that's, that's driven by them. Yeah, and all of this is coupled to what is now known as the Ferguson effect, where cops, because they don't want to wind up on YouTube on what seems to be the wrong end of yet another lethal encounter, which in their world may in fact have been a justified shooting, they're just going to stop policing proactively, and crime rates are probably soaring as a result of that. So the Rittenhouse thing is interesting because, so you have someone who draws the the obvious lesson, especially right of center here politically, that, you know, we have the Second Amendment for a reason. It only makes sense to get really into guns and personal protection because you really can't delegate the protection of yourself and your family to the cops. At a minimum, they, they're just usually not there when you need them, and they're going to show up too late to do anything other than hopefully solve the crime that you were the victim of. So if you, if you care about self-defense, well, then it really has, you have to put the self back in self-defense. And there, therefore, you need guns, and you need to train with them, and you need to take selfies of yourself walking around in the woods with your AR-15 and become one of those guys. And then you hear about this breakdown in social order a few um, miles away from where you live, and you decide you're going to be this um, you know, high testosterone good Samaritan and get out there and put yourself between the forces of chaos and the social order that still needs to be ma maintained, and you're going to protect people's businesses, as I think Kyle Rittenhouse was um, intending to do, at least that's been reported. And there's, you know, there's footage of him cleaning up graffiti earlier in the day, I think. And then he's, he's interviewed by somebody yeah, and at, in at the, various points. Yeah. In, in those interviews, he seems like a perfectly nice kid. I mean, right. it, 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 there's no indication that he's intending to shoot somebody. There's every indication that I mean, I, I, during some portions of it, I think he's offering medical assistance, maybe medical assistance that he has no business offering. And I don't think people, many people take him up on, on it, but there's no, as far as I can tell, no recorded in evidence in, in the videos or interviews with him that he's there looking for a fight. That said, you know, he, he went from Illinois to Wisconsin and picked up an AR-15 and went into a really, really, really dangerous place where anything could have happened. So maybe right. that is, you know, all by itself looking for a fight. Yeah. And I, I wonder whether he had the right level of, I mean, he obviously did not have the right level of situa situational awareness, uh, awareness of what he was getting into. I mean, if, if you're walking around open carrying with any weapon, even if it's a, a tiny pistol, if someone taps you on the shoulder in that scenario in Kenosha when buildings are burning around you and people are screaming in crowds around you, you have to consider that within the next few seconds, someone is going to try to kill you Yeah, with the, the weapon that you have brought that could be the, the weapon that, that puts a bullet in your brain. So I didn't see any awareness in, in, in his face. I, I don't imagine that, that any awareness could possibly be had if you know, you're, say, a, a recent high school graduate who shows up with your AR-15 in the middle of a riot in a you know, previously unexampled, horrible situation in, in this country. This is, this is a situation that, that 
he clearly had never been in that he'd be terrible at assessing the danger to him. You know, when when younger reporters go into war zones uh, and I talk to them, sometimes they'll ask, you know, what do you suggest? What should I know? And and the first thing that I say is is that danger just doesn't always feel like danger. Hmm. You're going into a situation that, that is is unlike anything you you've experienced before. If you've seen movies, then you they they edit out all the boring parts that happen in the movies. Right. So you're you're going to have a, a very poor sense of what the actual rhythms of a day in Baghdad will be, and you'll be surprised at how quickly things go bad, how quickly the danger arrives, how quickly it it passes, and these things are, are extremely difficult to train. They're the kind of thing that you learn by accidentally surviving long enough, and you know he he had one day one day in, in Kenosha and, and they turned bad really, really fast. I, I'm still very curious about what happened in the, the actual run up to the, to the first shooting. Cause it, you know, the guy who he shot, Joseph Rosenbaum, doesn't seem to have been the most stable individual. And, you know, that there's suggestions that he was furious, that he may have attacked Rittenhouse. And then there's all these moral questions and legal questions that I, I don't think either of us is really competent to 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 adjudicate about whether Rittenhouse, under the laws of the state of Wisconsin, would have been justified in 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 shooting him if Rosenbaum, say, grabbed for his gun, as is uh, I think alleged in the criminal complaint against Rittenhouse that that he shot Rosenbaum after after that happened. That is after Rosenbaum went for his his gun, but you know, it it just has to be said again and again, that if you open carry in a situation like that, where there is mayhem all around you and crazy people who have literally, you know, flocked there from, from, from other states because they're looking for craziness, then you've committed a, a, an error that is really sealing your fate. I, I, I can't see how, how, to, how to see it any other way. If, if Rittenhouse had been from Kenosha, and had just woken up and rolled out of bed and, and seen mayhem in, in his front yard and thought he had to defend himself. That would be one thing. But he made such a terrible decision that almost everything that happened that flowed from that is going to have to be seen in, in that light. Well, it's a decision that so many people are making. Everyone who shows up to one of these protests or shows up anywhere, you know, whether it's in counter protests to the protest they don't like or it's, it's their own protest, you know, as we saw against lockdown earlier in the pandemic, anyone who shows up armed, you know, carrying an AR-15 or, you know, any firearm, some of these people have thought it through and, and they're just happy to run the risk. But the reality is, is that the presence of a gun completely changes the dynamic of any interpersonal violence. When you know you have a gun with concealed carry, that's its own burden ethically and tactically, right? I mean, just you can have a gun on you and no one can see it, and still there are many doors closed to you. You cannot afford to get into a wrestling match with someone or a shoving match or a boxing match, you know, in the kind of ordinary range of interpersonal violence when you have a gun on your belt, which at any moment, you know, you might decide to draw or you, it, you might fall out, you know, in, in a scuffle or it might be seen by the other person. I mean, just Everything is potentially lethal, and 
you know, you have to think through what you're going to do if you start losing a fight and you are armed. Is a different situation. Now, obviously, anyone who's a true firearms person will, you know, have recourse to, you know, several aphorisms at this point, you know, better to be judged by 12 <laughs> than, you know, carried by six or, you know, in certain cases, obviously, I, I would agree with that. But the real hu- heuristic here is if you're going to be someone who, who assumes the responsibility, you know, the real responsibility of real self-defense, right? If you're going to have firearms, train with firearms, think of the scenarios under which you would use firearms, right? You're going to be the sheriff of your own life in the end. And uh, you understand that calling 911 is not actually a self-defense plan. You have to avoid violence at virtually every cost, right? Avoidance has to be your master strategy because it's only if you've practiced that impeccably do you know that you will be justified if you find yourself having to resort to lethal force. And if you've decided to just go out to a random car dealership with your AR-15 because you you don't think the cops are going to defend those precious cars, you're someone who's not avoiding violence at all, right? You're putting yourself in a in a very tenuous circumstance, you know, in front of a mob, and it's totally irresponsible in the end. And so that I mean that part can't be defended, and yet everything subsequent to that might have been again the, you know more facts may come in or they may never come in but we only know what you know the video seems to show at the moment everything that happened from that point forward might have been legitimate self defense right and that's what makes this such a murky situation and so to characterize this as you know a white supremacist went out there with the intent of killing some innocent peaceful protesters which is where so many people have landed that's quite, you know, quite deranging of you know, our, our political conversation. Yeah, re- reality is so much more interesting than that inaccurate gloss that, that you just quoted. I mean, it, it strikes me how many different ways you could describe this situation. And I'm partial to the one that, that we both seem to agree on, that Rittenhouse made a catastrophic, stupid error in deciding to bring an AR-15 to an extremely dangerous place. And all right, so that's one way to describe it. Another way to describe it is he was running away and he fell down and was attacked by someone with a skateboard. And, and a skateboard, by the way, that is, that's a deadly weapon. If you're lying on the ground and someone is beating you about the shoulder and head with a skateboard, you might not uh, survive that. And then he shot the man. So right. that's going to be described, I think, by a lot of people as self-defense. But there's other ways to think about it. You know, the guy who was running at him with the skateboard thought correctly that he had just killed a man, that he had shot a man, and yeah. probably thought that he had done so unjustly, and that this is a murderer who's running away and still has the murder weapon and might be intending to use it. It's a horrifying situation. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, so that's, that's a hugely important point. From his point of view, he's being pursued by a mob, which he is, but from the mob's point of view, I mean, certainly any individual in that mob might have thought, okay, we've got an active shooter situation. I have to be one of those courageous people who's going to put his life on the line to try to you know, knock him unconscious with my skateboard and get his gun. So it's easy to see how well-intentioned people with incomplete information could all be acting in this crazily lethal way. 
And we could even look back to the original encounter, the re- original lethal encounter with Rosenbaum, where you know the witness says that Rosenbaum grabbed at the gun. And as you've been saying, if someone grabs at your AR-15, you, you, you have to consider that that as a, a pretty aggressive move that might end in your demise. So, all right, fine. But then keep in mind, Rittenhouse uh, is a 17-year-old kid who may illegally have been carrying around an AR-15. So now you can recast it as Rosenbaum tries to disarm someone who's illegally running around a, a riot with an AR-15. Hmm. Suddenly that doesn't sound like such a crazy thing to do. Maybe it, it sounds even heroic. And I, I'm not going to suggest that I know what was going through Rosenbaum's head. But look, it, there's so many different ways to, to, to see this, you know, what looks like a pretty straightforward issue. But actually, you can recast it uh, with Rittenhouse as, as, as a hero, or you can recast him as a complete doofus who, who caused the death of two people and the you know, near severing of the arm of a third. These conversations for me do quickly grade into a public service announcement, because I just think people's intuitions here tend to be so terrible. And it, there really are just some very simple principles that can keep people safe most of the time. And, and the one I just reiterated here is just, you have to avoid violence as your, your master strategy. You need to be avoiding it whenever you can. And then when you can't, you'll know you're in a different situation. If you or someone, you know, someone else is going to be victimized, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you should, you should never save somebody else's life. If you're talking about you or someone else being victimized by violence, well, then, then you're in a situation where you can't avoid it. But otherwise, I mean, so much is accomplished by just not putting yourself in the dangerous situation in the first place. On the flip side, I mean, just the cover the Jacob Blake shooting, when cops are issuing commands, especially when they have their guns drawn and pointed at you, you have to follow those commands. That's all you have to do. I mean, certainly in the United States, right? I'm, you know, I'm sure there are some death squad cops in other countries who you may want to take your chances and, and run from. But to not be following the commands of a cop who is now so spun up that he or she's aiming their gun at you is to risk being killed by the cops, whatever you do next. And the most important thing is what you're doing with your hands, right? The cops care almost about nothing else than seeing your hands at every moment, right? Because your hands are the only threat to them. You're not going to hurt them with your feet. You're not going to hurt them with your head, really. I mean, it's at any kind of distance. It's only whether you could be reaching for a weapon at that moment. Now is not the time to reach into your pants and just pull out your cell phone so you can start recording this unjust arrest. People are suicidal morons here. And, and this cuts completely across race and gender and class, right? You see people of every class, race, gender, think that they're, they're in some kind of movie where what the scene calls for is the best method acting protest against the injustice of being arrested. And it is incredibly dangerous and it's within your power to control, right? Let me speak up though. Sam, as a, maybe as a suicidal moron, (laughs) I don't have that many interactions with cops. I have more than the national average, maybe one per year. Mm -hmm. I've had a couple where I was being stopped unjustly. Here's how unjust it was. They were looking for 
an African-American male. I'm not an African-American male. <laughs> Nonetheless, they stopped me in suspicion of, of a crime after someone was, someone called it in and said someone who was, uh, yeah, between 20 and 30, an African-American male. And I'm unfortunately on the wrong side of 40. I'm half white, half Chinese. So anyway, I got stopped. And let me tell you that if you're being ordered to move your body in certain ways, if mm-hmm. you, and, and you know that it is unjust, I in fact complied. I did exactly what I was told to do, but I could feel it in my body. I could feel it in my muscles that there was not just an indignity to this, but you don't want to do what they're telling you to do. And you feel oh, yeah. it, it, not just in a, in, a, in a way of like, oh, this is going to be a lawsuit later. It is your body turns sluggish. It starts doing things that you didn't expect it to do. And you really have to concentrate to do what, what you, know, you described as rational. It is rational, but it's harder to be rational than you might think. My experience from that, at the very least, gave me a bit more sympathy with people who just find themselves doing things that they themselves would describe as irrational in any other outside of that context. Yeah. But while it's happening, they, they just can't stop themselves from at the very least talking back and maybe a, a physically acting back a, a bit. And, and, you know, as we said, if you're a cop and you start seeing hands moving in unpredictable ways, reaching for pockets that that they shouldn't be reaching for, then you can easily see how things, these things would, would get out of control. And just by telling people, be rational and listen to the cops, that, that's, that's just not going to be enough because no one is going to really be training for that, for that scenario and for the, the emotional control that it takes to just settle down and obey the unreasonable order of, of the, the guy with the gun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. That's why you have to have this preloaded on the hard drive. You'll feel outrage. It's going to be, at a minimum, a humiliating inconvenience, right? I mean, who knows? You're on your way to somewhere. You know, not now, but in in pre-COVID days, you were on your way to somewhere. And, you know, a cop is pulling you over or stopping you on the street. And I've had a few encounters like that. And... You know, some have been completely pleasant and professional, and some, you know, I'm in the presence of a a person who I'm totally prepared to believe is in many contexts a sadistic asshole. And I, I'm 100% sure that, you know, with at least one of these encounters, had I been black or Hispanic, I would have absolutely perceived what I was getting from the cop as a symptom of racism, whereas, in fact, he was just an asshole. But that's why you have to think through these scenarios in advance. And again, the master variable here, and I'm happy to hear from any cops who would demur, it's your hands. Your hands have to be totally unthreatening for every second of this encounter. They have to be on the the steering wheel of your car or stuck out the window. Or if you're going to reach for something, you have to be doing it slowly and only under the command of the cop. That is a tightrope walk that you can't afford to rush. And that's your only job in that moment. Afterwards, you can sue them into oblivion and, you know, write your op-eds and, you know, call your congressperson and 
protest in the streets with your friends, right? You can, you can make as much of this injustice as you want later, but not when the cop is having to decide whether or not to draw his gun, and, and certainly not once it's drawn. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I would put the percentage of people who watch videos and understand what's actually going on from the cop's perspective in the low single digits, even among well-educated people. I just cannot believe what, the kinds of things people say when they see these arrests go awry and what they think should have happened, could have happened. It's just amazing to me. So, Be- Being in Norway right now, you know, I, I mentioned I, I've been in Norway for about a month now, and this is a society where people don't have guns in nearly the numbers that they have in the United States. And it makes a difference. Oh, yeah. It, and when I say it makes a difference, I, I, I mean the level of relaxation that you, that you find here when you walk down the street, even in the most dangerous parts of Oslo. It feels like a, an absolute holiday compared to going through any American city. I'm not suggesting that the United States should you know, repeal the Second Amendment. I'm not suggesting that, that uh, it could become Norway in, in any circumstance. What it does show me, though, is that there is a sense of, of just collective clenching that we have to do as Americans right now. Mm. It is not a comfortable place to be because, you know, because of COVID, we're all being told to do things that we don't want to do that don't have immediate payoff to us and sometimes don't have any payoff to us at all, but to, only to others. And that, that collective sphincter tightening, I, I think, has real negative effects, especially when it's a chronic condition, as it has been for six odd months. In Norway, one of the, one of the real dividends of, of this country's having crushed the curve is that that clenching just isn't happening. You know, people are very, very free to just go about, you know, send their kids to school, go to cafes, go to restaurants. And at some point, you know, maybe the disease is going to come back here. But the fact that, that the collective tension here has, has not been sustained for the amount of time that it has been in the United States is something you feel in the air. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea what happens to a society, namely mine in the United States, where we've had to deal with that for so long. I mean, I, I guess we're seeing it right now. It's, it's, it's not a, a, a good outcome. Yeah, and there, there's no end in sight at this point. It's amazing. We're six months into this, and it's as though we... I'm not quite sure what lessons we've learned. Everyone has taken... The lessons are, themselves are so politicized, we can't even agree on whether anyone should wear masks. You said you wanted to say something about race, I wanted to give you a chance to say that. Oh, well, we see one video. That video stands in for, of course, everything else that we want to say about that issue, about the race issue. And I mean, again, as a reporter, the stories that I do almost always take the form of, there is something that, that that, that is fascinating, that is, that seems to mean one thing, and then you look at it closer and you find out it means something else, or just that it's so complicated that it doesn't mean anything anymore, but it's way in- more interesting than it first appears. This tendency to take that kind of reporting and then uh, just not do it, just start with the conclusion, start with what, whatever political message you want to, 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 to freight that video with. Mm. You know, it's professionally bad for me. I, I, I think it's important that, that 
this job is is one that 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 people do and that 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 readers demand but there's clearly some kind of maybe a cognitive bias in favor of the other type of of reporting on a story like this that is having something that you want to say about race and then taking the 17 20 second video and then loading up that that view onto that video no matter what what the the underlying facts of the situation are yeah i mean th- this is my concern around this this is what i said in in that previous podcast at, at some length the problem for us is that there will always be another video like this if we want to advertise to ourselves in defiance of any other information that we have an epidemic of racist cops lynching black men, there will always be a video of an arrest gone awry wherein a black man gets shot and uh, likely killed by cops, right? And most people watching that video, when it's successfully promulgated on social media and in the media, will not know that there are two other videos where the exact same thing is happening to a white guy and that there's a much more responsible way to grapple with the data on police violence. And I'm not even ruling out the possibility that there is a real problem with systemic racism in policing. The evidence we have is that cops go hands-on black suspects more than white suspects, but the same data suggests that they kill white suspects more you know, once these encounters start or sh- shoot them more. And at a minimum, there does not appear to be evidence that they shoot black suspects more. We have to actually talk about the real numbers that describe what's really happening. And if we're not going to do that, and we're content to find just the next horrific video, we will continually be inflamed and just render the remaining problem of racism and ra- racial disparities, wherever it exists, impossible to talk about because it's, you know, it's now part of a a hysteria. Our discussion of race now, politically, on the left, is scarcely more rational than the satanic abuse panic we had back in the 80s. I mean, it's, it's not to say that racism isn't still a problem and we don't have to talk about it, but the, the level of craziness, once you get to the far fringe of the left, is just, I mean, we're, we're burning witches. And it's, um, among its many negative effects, it is the thing that will get Trump reelected if it's possible to re to reelect such an incompetent person at this point. But that 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 takes us to another problem, though, which is, you know, I, I've described this as maybe a, a a cognitive flaw, the way that our brains are wired that that we are, are we tend to freight with meaning videos that that we start with the meaning and then and then impute them to the videos that we find. But of course. I've had politicians tell me off the record that this is this is not just a cognitive bias. This is an in, intentional thing. That is, there is an intentional search for this type of this type of incident that will get voters excited. Yeah. That will get people thinking about a particular issue in a particular way. And it would be one thing if if it was just a, a kind of um, something we could train ourselves out of, but the fact that there are people who are looking for a way 
to turn these videos, which, you know, we don't even have to wait for the next video to come out. We, every video already exists. Every permutation of race that we could imagine, police, suspect, et cetera, already exists. It sort of feels like it, it wouldn't require anything even to happen. It would just require someone to decide to politicize, surface, distribute whatever video it is that, that shows whatever outcome or politically you know, politically advantageous message there is. I think I'm most worried about that, that this is considered a, a reasonable thing to do by anyone at all right. to, to kind of seed that kind of, of terror. Yeah. And, and then we're, now we have the prospect of deep fakes, which is all, now all too real. Did you see the recent one, which is somewhat primitive given what will soon be possible? But did you see the one where the, where it seems that Biden is being interviewed and he's falling asleep on camera. Oh yeah, and it's actually Harry Belafonte. Right, exactly. Yeah, so you swap in Biden for Harry Belafonte, but it seems right on the kind of information precipice where we could just lose contact with what is real information entirely. I mean, unless the tools by which you can debunk these things follow you know very quickly upon the ability to produce these kinds of fakes what are journalists going to do when you receive a video of biden with his own ar15 it's like <laughs> like anything's possible right so you're going to find someone at google or you know some other tech company to help you parse what seems to be the the evidence of your senses well as a journalist i'm not that worried about it you know i, I don't i've never published an image that turned out not to be real. You know, I, I do my diligence. And if I share something that, that I can't vouch for, then I, I say what its provenance is. Mm. But, you know, what I'm maybe more concerned about is that it's, it's not really the journalists that are being taken in by things. It, it's, it's readers. Yeah. And there's not much that journalists are going to be able to do to educate readers. You know, we can say what's real, what's not. Obviously that doesn't work because things still get still get shared. The only solution that I could imagine is some kind of new norm by readers. That is or by consumers of media. Right now I I, I don't get a sense that people feel much shame when they find out that they've been had. If you shared a video of Joe Biden taking a nap on the air and it turned out not to be real, then yeah, too bad. You just go about your day. I would sort of like more of a burden to be placed on, on, on readers. That is, if you're not going to feel shame about, about that kind of thing, then I, I would hope that, that the people you shared it to encourage you to feel that shame. I, I don't know how to affect that change in attitudes, but I don't see that it, I don't see the media as being the problem here. It seems to be a much greater, more, you know, on the consumer side imperative that, that people regrow a sense of skepticism. Yeah, I think the tech platforms could help. I'm not sure what the perfect response is on Twitter to realizing that you've shared something that, that was inaccurate. I mean, whether you delete it or retweet it with some explanation as to its falsity, because if you're just deleting it, then you look like you're you know, hiding your shame. I think we need some norm around what to actually do to clean up the mess you've made. 
what are your thoughts about how we're going to um, stumble toward the finish line of this election uh, in the, over the next 60 days? The allegations that our election may be fraudulent or hacked, or I mean, like, are we going to have a result that we can trust in any reasonable time frame? The prospects of Trump not conceding. What's your bell curve of possibilities there over the next 60 days or beyond? I mean, I guess, I guess the, the real concern with respect to Trump is if he loses, what the next you know, month or so might be like. All right. So I, I don't know if this translates into a, a prediction or a, a shape of a bell curve, but one belief that I've had that I, I don't think too many other people share is that, is that Donald Trump wants a way out. I don't think that Donald Trump wants to be president. I don't think he wanted to be president. And I mm. think if he could find a, a dignified way to leave office, remain a free man, remain a rich man, then he would do that. I've thought a lot about a story that didn't make that much splash when it came out, but I believe it was in early 2017. There was a story that, that Trump had offered the vice presidency to John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, mm. and by all accounts, a sane, if not very politically attractive individual for the Republicans. And Kasich a, a, apparently asked Trump, all right, well, you know, what will I be able to do as vice president? And Trump said, you are going to be the most powerful vice president in history. You will control both foreign and domestic policy. Quite an offer. And Kasich asked Trump, well, what will you have? What will you have as your portfolio? And Trump said, well, obviously, making America great again. This is completely in keeping with Trump's biography. That is, mm. the type of, of the appetite, appetite for actual work that he has had is basically zero. The desire to make money by putting his name with, you know, gold leaf on it on a building. That's the type of work that he's wanted to do throughout his entire life. And I think that it's quite possible that in some alternative history, maybe one without the Mueller investigation, one where he might have been able to resign during his first term, saying that I alone could have fixed America, and I did it, and now I will hand over power to the capable hands of Mike Pence. And mm retire like Cincinnatus back to my farm, my Trump Tower. I, I think that that is, that's a plausible alternative history. Obviously, we'll know, never know whether it happened, but we might consider it, consider that, that fundamental laziness of Trump as we consider what he will do in the future. Mm -hmm. And that includes, you know, do I think that Donald Trump will want to be, have this, this, this onerous responsibility of, of being president during a civil war. That sounds like a lot of work to me, hmm. not something that he'd be, he'd be that into. So where does this lead us when we're trying to analyze what's going to happen in November? I would not be shocked at all if, if Trump disputes a negative result for, him, for himself. I would be shocked if he disputes it to the point of, of making a lot of work for himself. It, it it seems like the kind of thing that he might do to to say I didn't actually lose, I was robbed, and then retire to some kind of luxurious existence, never having 
properly conceded, but still no longer being in the White House. That's a scenario, at least that I think is undervalued as a possibility. Mm. What, what about the prospect of him being prosecuted for one or a number of crimes that have yet to be specified once he leaves office? I guess it's a two-part question. Do you think that's there's anything grave enough that that's likely to be pursued? And do you think it should be pursued? I mean, even if we knew that he really could go to prison for something he did that could be proven, what what do you think about the precedent of indicting a, a former president for a crime and, and actually pursuing it to the end? Yeah, I I think it's 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 a deep irony that yeah one of the things that could keep him from from relinquishing the office is the fact that he might be prosecuted. And if if we would all just let him succeed and collectively agree that he could 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 leave without incident, then he might do it. Now, I don't know whether that is is likely to happen, but I I, I think it would be. I don't have any principled objection to prosecuting former presidents for doing things that that are actually criminal. Obviously, you'd want to keep your hands as clean as possible and make sure that the prosecution was relentlessly apolitical, but that's nearly impossible to do in this scenario. Yeah, that's that's what worries me. It's just as justified as it could be, depending on the specific charge in the current climate it's just it would be perceived as as a partisan witch hunt no matter how impeccable you were in hiring the right prosecutors and they could all be former republicans or actual republicans and still it wouldn't suffice well the other possibility of course is that he would self-pardon before he leaves office right yeah i can't imagine that's actually going to survive any constitutional analysis i, I know i asked I guess it was David from, it might have been Cass Sunstein, somebody who knows much more than I do about this. It still seemed like a gray area as to whether or not it was possible, but it just seems like something that should not be possible. Yeah, well, between the time when you talked to Cass Sunstein or David from and today, has it become more or less possible in your mind that, that Donald Trump would pursue a constitutionally dubious theory because it seemed like there was just a chance that maybe it would work out for him? There's never been any question that he would attempt such a thing, but just the idea that it could be legal in the end, you know, that the Supreme Court would judge it to be constitutional, it just seems like a patent violation of the logic of, of it. You can't pardon yourself. That's just, that doesn't make any sense. It's offensive to your and my sense of justice and just the normal order of the universe. But, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that, that those things don't matter at all to Donald Trump. That's one of his great strengths is that, is that yeah. things that, that we just object to instinctively because we have at least semi-rational minds, they don't even occur to him to, to raise as an objection. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's perfectly possible that he'll do that. That's one of the things that's been so interesting to, to discover, you know, under Trump is that so much of what he does that is wrong is not illegal. We don't have laws covering every spot on the map of possible abuses of power. We rely so much on political norms and, and norms of ethical governance that it's just that laws don't necessarily apply to these spots. And you know, if you're standing there, you're you're in defiance of what everyone 
had good reason to expect you would do. It's amazing. I mean, I, I don't know if a bunch of new laws will get written in the end to figure out how to close all these ethical loopholes, but it's it's been bizarre to see just how much he can get away with without it being obviously illegal. Yeah, I, I think that anything that, that would have even an outside chance of, of redounding to his benefit, you know, if it didn't work, it didn't work. That That would be something that he would consider, even if it's something that, you know, to you and I, it would, it would be offensive, it would be shameful. These things just simply don't occur to him. I mean, I, I, I think often I, I, I wrote a profile last year of John Bolton, then the national security mm-hmm. advisor, who's now on the anti-Trump bandwagon, but conspicuously not pro-Biden for some reason. And you know, he was asked in an interview recently, you know, do you think Donald Trump is really a, a racist? He, he just, at that point, had just shared a video of a man in a retirement community in Orlando, Florida, going by the camera uh, on a golf cart and, and yelling white power, uh, which sounds like the kind of thing that a racist might do is, is yell white power or just share a video of someone yelling white power. And Bolton's response, I thought, was was interesting. He said, you realize he probably hasn't seen the video. And it's not that he's just saying he hasn't seen the video. He really hasn't seen the video. All he knew was that this was a video of some people who were supportive of him. And then he retweeted it and that's it. And mm. you and I, 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 you know, I mentioned a moment ago that, that there should be stronger norms of, of shame <laughs> for sharing things that are irresponsible or fake, those norms of shame are totally absent in, in his case. And the idea that, that, you, that you can understand what he really thinks by, by seeing a video like that, that's the kind of thing that you could, you could reasonably consider if you were talking about a normal, psychologically normal human being. Right. But if you're talking about someone who, who is so amoral that he might just share videos because he knows that they're by or of people who like him, then you just have to toss out a lot of the intuitions that you, you would normally have. And those include the intuition that, that yeah, you, 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 might, you might actually believe things that are, are being said in, in, in the videos. I don't think it even occurs to him that that's, that that's one of the criteria for retweeting something is that you endorse it even in part. Yeah, it also extends to the QAnon phenomenon that we haven't spoken about, but just the idea that he had nothing but benign neglect for QAnon because they apparently support him, which is good enough for him. He pays no penalty for that among otherwise sane people who support him, which is the thing I will never understand. I mean, this, is, this is how it has the character of a kind of personality cult. His statement that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue really seems to be true. It's like there's nothing that gets truly counted against him, whatever it is. But you know, with that statement that oh, I don't know about these QAnon people; they seem to like me. I I think that most people, especially most people who don't like Donald Trump, heard that and thought he's lying. You know, this is a huge movement that has quite literally genocidal ideas that, that they want to round up thousands of people and kill them. So surely he's aware of of this movement, and he's just lying when he says he doesn't know what they what, what they're all about, but they just like him. But, you know, again, that's an example of analyzing Donald Trump as if he is like you or me. But all the evidence suggests that he was actually telling the truth. 
that's all he cares about people is whether they like him or not. You know, I, I had a Republican, Republican member of Congress who knows Trump well say, if you really want to understand the guy, you should think about him as a hotel manager, which is in fact what he is. You know, mm -hmm. he's, imagine him walking through the lobby of a hotel and asking you, how's your stay? You need another pillow? That kind of thing. And just trying to make things right, not really caring at all about, about the person as a person, but just trying to make them be on his side at the end of the conversation. That's all he cares about. And I, I think that really is how he sees the world. He doesn't care about anything about, about, about anyone except whether they are Trump supporters. And once he knows that, then he can move on to the next person. Well, Graham, thank you for giving me so much of your time. I know it's not early there in Oslo, and it's great to, great to get you back on the podcast. Sam, it's a pleasure. Thank you.